Listener Production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. This is the series that looks behind the front doors of the most successful people in the Australian music business over the past 50 years. So far, we've heard some of the great success stories, all of whom have survived by working 80 hours a week and continually looking for every opportunity that comes down the road. This episode's guest is one of those people. There are many in the music business who seek fame, sometimes more so than income, and there are others who just get on with it and manage to be incredibly successful without having that giant public profile. Michael Koppel is one of those people. A long-time tour promoter and now chairman of Live Nation Australasia, Michael's career in music started fresh out of university. The appetite for a life in touring started early. Astute, uncompromising, a workaholic, and with a love of interesting left-of-centre music, he sits down with Peter for a conversation about starting out, growing his own business, and how the future of touring looks. I've got a starting question for you. How did it all begin for you? Um, I think it all began when I was in my teens and discovered pop music. Although first I discovered blues and folk music and I thought that was the only genuine article that would last. And most of the pop of the late 50s and early 60s was very ephemeral. Then the Beatles came along and uh, like 95% of the rest of the Western world, I fell in love with the music. Um, wanted first to become a musician, but displayed absolutely zero talent for uh, for doing that. Um, but it was a big music fan. And then when I'd finished university, I uh, did a law degree at Melbourne Uni. Uh, I fell into business with a guy I'd met at university and thought I'd do that for a year or two. And 45 years later, I'm still doing it. So did how did your parents feel when you took the left-hand turn and didn't stay in the law? My parents were actually very good about it because when I went and told them that I... Because I'd finished my degree and I'd done my articles, so I was, I was qualified as a barrister and solicitor, but I thought I was going to study a uh, further degree in the States. So I w- went into business and I went to see my parents and said, look, I've decided I want to try this music business thing. And they said, are you sure? I said, yeah. End of conversation. Um was the Nucleus Agency the first piece of the puzzle of your life after university? No, no, it wasn't. Um, I, I went into business with a guy called Zev Isaac, uh, who is a, had, had a really a great sense of business and some brilliant ideas. And we started off selling vinyl records. Uh, and uh, the genesis of the business was he'd gone to the states to try and well genesis was he was bored with university life so he ran for the position of entertainment officer at melbourne university no one ran against him so he got elected so he started looking at how campuses toured major acts in the states and thought we could do that in australia we could build a a circuit of uh, university gigs and bring acts out so he went to the states to try and chase down some talent and when he was there he saw that vinyl records were selling for $3.99 and here they were $6.99 so he brought back a few hundred sold them on campus made some money, bought more in sold more, end of the year campus closes so he wanted to find a record store so he said I want to go back to the States try and find some acts to tour 
will you help me out? So we started off selling records and then the business expanded pretty rapidly into promoting, into artist management, into um, running venues. Uh, it became an agency business much later on when I was on holiday. I took my first holiday in six years and came back and found I owned a booking agency, which I never wanted to do. <laughs> and what, what, it took me two years to get out of it. What was it? What was it called in those early days with the record shop? Uh, it was Gaslight Records. Oh, I loved Gaslight Records, Michael. Yeah. I loved Gaslight Records. Yeah. That was the best record store in Australia. It was for a long period of time. We, we then sold it subsequently when the, when the partnership ended. Uh, and it, it went in different hands. Uh, well, it, I mean, I know it, it, it. I don't. From what I gather, it hasn't survived. But no, got, very few record stores have survived yeah, anywhere quite, in the world. Yeah. So then, the tell me, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but Zev, who I, who I did know reasonably well because you guys mm. were in Sydney as well, but it always appeared to me that your your world was the alternate side of the business. You weren't that focused on mainstream and and he, you two were very brave about how you did things is is that because well, zev zev has long moved out of the business um where is he now he, he's living in israel he lives in tel aviv and he has a venue on tel aviv harbor which which uh doubles as a reception center and gig place and he does promote still he's done some stage things did madonna i think and elton john in israel uh, you know yeah. but he's not there are, there are more aggressive promoters who've now built the business and he he's very episodically involved in it um how long did that relationship last for? um we're probably in business for eight eight to nine years i think um you know, it was one of those. We, we knew nothing about business, so we had to find our feet. And we, you know, we we ran seven or eight businesses. Two or three would make money. Five would lose money. We'd pay for our lifestyle and get nowhere. And after a while, it it was me that was actually financing the business um, by having to go and borrow money from my dad ah. when we ran into trouble. And I said to him, "Look, this is not working out. It's not really a balanced relationship. We don't know what each other is is doing. We're going in different directions." Uh, and am I nucleus was in the middle of this somewhere? Uh, it was near the end of it. Um, right. And that's the agency that arrived when you came back from holidays? Yeah, I was in Bali and came back and we owned an agency. And the, and the only reason we owned an agency was because Zeb was driving somewhere and needed to make an urgent phone call. And he passed the offices of, uh, of a couple of guys he knew. So he stopped in to use their phone in the days pre-cell phone, and they talked him into starting an agency with them. <laughs> he was a, he was a, a, a man was of built, swift decisions. Yes, he was a man of swift and, and often bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so I I, I was uh, I, I received a call the other day out of the blue after many years of never even knowing he was there from a bloke called John Sinclair, yep. who was one of the Nucleus people, mm -hmm. and another bloke who informed me has passed away called Chris Plimmer. Oh, I didn't know Chris had passed away. And that, but that was—they were in Sydney. Those guys, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, yes, they were. And, and in Melbourne, you—you—I've always, again, being not a participant in this, but you were the alternative, really, to Michael Gudinski's premier 
world of those days? We were the alternative, but the, uh, the, the, the lesson I learned from those days that we were taking on an entrenched system uh, and Michael is quite brilliant at, at forming alliances in the business. So we were always the underdog. We were never going to be the overdog. <clears throat> we had a period of, of, of great success when we aligned ourselves with Dirty Pool, who managed the Angels and yes. Cold Chisel and Ice House. And we booked them and we booked in excess. So, yeah, that was a period of of strong success. But ultimately, we're never going to win because we couldn't attract good enough operators and most of them were poached as soon as they got established and had some success with us. Uh, you mean managers now or...? Agents. Agents. Oh, yeah, and managers. And, you know, managers to some degree as well because managers can be a very fickle bunch. And oh, please, Michael. How dare you? Um, can. <laughs> I wanted to ask you uh, for your uh, take on a on a legendary story that I have known about forever of um, a tour that you and Zev undertook, or, or I think it was the first tour of Elvis Costello mm-hmm. and his manager. Uh, Jake Riviera. A, 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 a fickle man, to say the least. No, actually, uh, actually a, 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 a legendary character in the business and someone who I've seen relatively recently, you know, who I think, uh, still think a lot of. Um, we did, uh, the Elvis Costello tour was, it was an insight into the world of double dealing because at the same time that we were booking Elvis's dates here with his American agent, Michael Gadinsky was booking his dates here with a UK agent. Oh. So we ended up with a Mexican standoff with two agents who had confirmed different promoters for the same tour. So I've forgotten how we worked out the commercial accommodation. I think we may have co-promoted, but we ran the tour. Could I ask what, when this was? What, the 70s, 80s? Uh, it was the peak of New Wave, so I would say at a guess um, probably late 70s. So the tour started off in, in Sydney, and because of Elvis's great talent and notoriety, we'd sold out five nights at the Regent Theatre. Um, they flew in from Japan... We had to hire a local backline. They played the first show. It was still remember the performance to this day. It was incendiary. But after 60 minutes, they walked off stage because that's all they played. And the audiences in those days were used to West Coast rock, two-hour shows, two-and-a-half-hour shows, applauded, cheered, stomped, no response from the band, rioted, destroyed the theatre. Which theatre? Regent Theatre. Oh, they uh, smashed all the Mr. seats. Mr. Fink, you know. Mr. Days. Fink, exactly. So smashed you know, up the chairs, threw the cushions down on the people below, tried oh. to push these big concrete plaster urns down onto oh, people. They were a happy group. Stormed the stage. Road crew <laughs> fled the theatre. <laughs> Backstage, Zev is trying to talk Jake into sending the band back on, and that becomes a fist fight, right? Oh. Between Zev and Jake? Yep. Well, this is a better story than the one I knew. And uh, then the police finally arrived 25 minutes after the theatre management have called them, clear the theatre out. We go home. I say to Jake on the way back to the Siebel townhouse, we need a statement for the media because this will raise some questions. He said, just tell them that Sydney would know rock and roll if it came up and bit them on the arse. First phone call the next morning was Leon Fink saying, I'm cancelling the rest of your shows. Oh. Right? Oh. And we reached a compromise in which uh, he agreed to let us go on, but with a, a huge security force. No one could stand up. If you left the theatre, you couldn't get back into the theatre. You were ejected. And we completed four more shows in that fashion. 
And the crowd still loved every minute of it? Still loved every minute of it. Uh, you know, Elvis is a great talent and uh, was a groundbreaking songwriter and musician. And you've had him here many times since then? No, I was sort of lost contact because uh, Jake and Zev fell out and after a tour with Rockpile, who uh, Jake also managed, which was another ride at the Palais Theatre, so that's oh. a different story. Um <laughs> He approached Zev at a, a function in Sydney and they got into another fight and Zev ripped his jacket sleeve off oh. of a, a jacket that the Dr. Feelgood had given him as, as an end-of-tour gift when he tour-managed them. Oh, no. And then Zev had it mounted in a frame and put it behind his desk in his office to scare people. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Koppel. In a moment, Peter and Michael look at his moves over the decades striking out on his own in the 80s with his own touring company, the growth of the Super Tour in the 90s and the entry of global companies such as Live Nation in the present day. The business always needs people mm. like you and then, you know, the round peg that doesn't quite fit into the square hole at the same time. Yeah. So, Zev departs sometime in, in at the end of the seventies or uh, late, uh, early early eighties eighty four. So after basically we had no money, so we had to find some money for us to be able to quit the businesses and sell things and so on. So we we did our first tour with U two, and we did a tour with the Cure, and both those were very successful, and that gave us the money that we could each walk away and start again separately. And that's when Michael Copper Presents arrived. Exactly. Um, and and it, it, in the middle of that, Nucleus closed its doors? Um, I don't recall what happened. I, I basically, at the end of the two years and all the grief and the, and the you know, uh, and, the, and the warfare between ourselves and Premier Harbour, I went to Zev and said, here's a present. These are my shares in the agency. It's now all yours. I don't want anything for them. I just never want to see them again. What did you... What would you have described yourself as when Michael Koppel Presents first created Roots and built... Well, I, you know, I think I'd reached that point having been involved in a number of different businesses that, that you saw the downfalls of each of them. I mean, I liked... You know, I was a music fan when I became a record retailer and after five or six years of working very hard in that business, I hated music and gave all my vinyl away. It took me two years to go back to listen to music again. Because mm. when you're forced to listen to music because you want to listen to the new releases and you want to stay current and so forth, and when you're carting vinyl around, as we often had to do on Friday nights and weekends to restock three or four stores that we were running, because no one would work the hours that we would work, so we ended up... I'd go to my mum's place for dinner on Friday night, get in the car, drive back, work till three or four in the morning, drop all the restocking back mm. for the weekend trade, fall over, go back and do it Saturday afternoon. So, you know, it was no life, especially once I, I, I was in a relationship and got married and so on. Mm. So the thing is, I, I didn't like record retailing. You know, artist management, I've just found too taxing because you had to be on 24-hour-a-day call, social advisor, fashion advisor, business Marriage advisor. Marriage sex is a yeah. description. So that didn't appeal. Uh, so I thought I'll, I'll promote because I really enjoyed the promoting side of things. So for the first year after Zev and I had split our partnership, I worked out of home and I didn't really want to do very much. I was thinking about what I'd do in my future. I was happy to sit out in the sun, read a book. Mm. And then people started calling me saying, listen, we really want you to tour so-and-so. 
And then I say I work with a few iconic acts. I think Miles Davis was one of the ones that tipped the balance for me. And I thought, you know, I should actually make this more active. Mm. So I think that was 84, 85, and it started getting busier and busier. Uh, I had some very good relationships with groups, you know, Talking Heads, U2, Eurythmics, Simple Minds, Pretenders, bands like that who, who were, you know, had become very prominent post-New Wave. And suddenly I had a, a very big business that was employing 10 or 12 people and uh, I needed to get serious about it. So then Michael Koppel Presents becomes... I'm not saying slowly because I never thought that... It, I thought it was a conscious moment in time after, in, in the years after Narara where mm. particularly acts that I wouldn't have thought nobody else would touch but Rodriguez and even The Cure in that first tour. I, mm. I don't know whether that was with Zev or on your own, but these these were... They weren't dark acts, but they were they were not... They were not mainstream pop acts at all, were they? No, I, I think um, the reality was we struggled to get mainstream pop acts because you had people like Paul Dainty, who was well-established before I got into the business, um, Pat Condon, Kevin Jacobson, you know, uh, Michael Chug and Michael Gadinsky, who were better established, better credential, had better relationships. So we needed to be a bit more innovative and we needed to... And, and probably my tastes led me to work with a Tom Waits or a Ry Cooper yeah. or a Miles Davis. You know, I've always done that. I, I, you know, we work with a lot of major pop artists and I, I'm a great admirer of their skill and their ability to gather mass audiences. But there are also individual artists who have brilliance that appeals only to smaller numbers of people that we work with. The, um, the the journey of Michael Koppel Presents then really then was through the 80s and the 90s and really the first part of, of the, the 21st century then. Look, I, I think there was a, term, a terminal change in the, in the worldwide live concert business in the early 90s, um, through the 70s and 80s. And this may be a function of my age at the time. You're but I just felt that uh, we were on the same path as the artists we all had run away to join the circus and then when the business became as huge as it did by the late 80s early 90s when you had artists selling hundreds of thousands of tickets here you know you contrast there were 30,000 people that came to Narara there were 85,000 people that came to see the Arrhythmics next time they came back to Sydney let alone the rest of the country so the business became mainstream and it attracted dare I say it lawyers and accountants Mm. And then it became, uh, I often use this story, when I was becoming a major promoter in the, in the early 80s, an agent would call me and say, what's the best show we can do in your market to make this band bigger and to enhance their career? By the 90s, the question was, what's the most money you can pay us? And that's where the auditors started turning up to count the ticket sales. Yeah, that's, that's, when, that's when it became, uh, you know analogous to working with IBM, you know, yeah. and having to have audit trails and compliance and pieces of paper that people would look at and accept and pay you back for what you'd spent on their behalf. Uh, and I think as well, you know, the, the artist changed from where's the club we can go and hang out to to where's the gym I can do my daily workout session at, you know. So is that is, that description, is that really the um, what changed that made you amenable to 
the eventual merger you created with uh, Live Nation? Uh, the world, the world has been changing. Um, you know, I now pay bands more money for one show than I turned over in my first five years as a promoter. You know, the, when I, the first show I did, I think, it was a Leo Kotke uh, acoustic guitarist show. Tickets were six dollars ninety. Right, you couldn't pay someone very much when you're only charging your in six dollars ninety a ticket. Bring back those days immediately, Michael. But. Uh, it got, it got bigger and bigger, and I woke up uh, at the start of 2012, uh, January 1, and I had tour deals in place for the next three or four months with $45 million worth of artist guarantees Blimey. that I was personally financing and responsible for. And it was only going to get bigger from that point onwards, and I just felt... How was Mrs. Coppola about that? She was oblivious to that. Was I didn't bring my worries home. <laughs> You know, I wasn't allowed to have a mortgage on the family house, so she was safe, whatever happened. But uh, but uh, so I looked at that and I thought, you know, the world's globalising, the risk is getting so big now that you need to have, uh, you know, you need to, uh, a broader security arrangement. When you have a company like Live Nation that does, you know, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar company and it can and it can do several hundred shows with one artist worldwide, Um You've got the capacity to take a downturn in one market because you're doing well in other markets. And I just thought the future is, is going to be very much like the death of the indie label by the major record labels coming along. But there is a spirit of entrepreneurship that you have, and so does Michael Chug and Michael Kudinski, that, that is about risk and reward, but, at the, but certainly risk, that um, is very difficult I mean, corporations, forgive me, but live, like Live Nation are driven by their share price. And in the middle of it, that, that, that level of big business really swallowing small business, history shows that what then evolves is the, the little guy finds the hole in the middle to find a place. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't have thought that was much different to how you had started Originally, I, I noticed the difference between what I call first-generation promoters and second-generation promoters. First-generation promoters are people like class like Michael Gadinsky, Michael Chug, Paul Dainty, you know, Leon Ramakis in Holland, Thomas Johansson in Scandinavia. Mm. They're guys who started doing shows because they loved the music yes, uh, and thought there, was, there might be a business there and they would risk their house, risk their family's livelihood, win, lose or draw, and they built the business into what it was. Now you have what are called second-generation promoters who work for a large company. If a tour doesn't do well, they don't risk anything. Their salary doesn't go down. They might get crimped on their bonus at year's end, but there's no personal risk involved. And I think that leads to a different attitude and a different sense of desperation. Is there still room for the smaller operators? I don't see how. I think I think every major promoter has come to uh, prominence on the back of a change in musical tastes. So, what propelled me was new wave and then grunge, mm. um, and subsequently it's electronic dance music and uh, you know uh, hip hop have driven certain promoters to prominence. So you, you could argue that if the music changed again radically, people who are young enough to be part of the audience, not trying to find out where the audience is could use that to get ahead but the reality of the world is now that you know you can't book a club show with a significant act for under 
ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. We were running whole tours with ten thousand dollars as our capital. So these the genres that you're just talking about, hip hop, EDM. Do you then build a business that that is where you've got individuals that are immersed in that business? Therefore, they can give you strong leadership advice about what to do. You try, you try to do that, but the, the the difference always, I think, the difference that always is is that um, when I was starting out, I would have a gut feel for what an artist was worth because yeah. I was one of the audience. So I'd know: Do I want to see them? How many people would share that view? What are they worth? Where do you play them? What do you charge for them? Now I think increasingly I can't bring that to the table because I'm not a 20 year old kid. I'm mm. not a 25 year old. I'm not a 14 year old kid. I'm not 30. I'm not 40. I'm a lot older than that. But uh, so you try and find someone who is hip and young enough of that generation, but they're not promoters, they're music fans. Mm. And they've become into the business because they're music fans. So you say, what's so-and-so worth? Oh, they'll be huge. And you book them, and they're not huge Mm. because that person has multiplied the potential audience by the extent of their enthusiasm for the artist. In part two of Peter Ricks' conversation with tour promoter and now chairman of Live Nation Australasia, Michael Koppel, they look at the changing landscape of touring with a new wave of festivals based on subgenres of music and artists now signing deals for global tours. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Listener.